Hello. Hi, Don. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's uh, it's a weird day in North Carolina. Because it's cold? Well, it's cold. Here's, here, here's, a, here's a funny day for you. So last night... <laughs> I'm laughing already. I know. I know. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> so last night, it was like a low of 40, maybe. Mm. Um, today's high is 72. You know, I, I think, uh, I think a friend of the podcast, uh, Chip Manuel, uh, posted a yeah. Facebook post with that forecast and, uh, it was a head scratcher. Yeah. And tonight's low 29, 29. So, and Hey, I, I guess, uh, carpe diem, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Well, unfortunately it's a, it's a day I can't, I, I can only see like a hundred yards outside of my uh, office window because there's fog. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was a firestorm or well, it could be toads the, were falling. Focus. From the sky, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an in, it's an infestation. Who knows what's going on? So it's a weird. So it's kind of a weird day. I usually so I'm doing my I'm recording today uh, in my office uh, on um, somewhat on campus, close to campus, like uh, close to w- when you sit close to your router. That's how close to campus I am. Uh, and uh, it's um, I usually have to close my blinds because it's kind of bright and today my blinds are wide open and it's all foggy it's weird it's it's kind of it's kind of a it's kind of a crappy day here in new jersey as well overcast and uh rain last night it looks like it's not raining right now but uh yeah it's uh one of those days that makes you uh just want to hibernate yeah yes it makes me want to drink a venti triple uh vanilla non-fat latte from uh from our friends good friends at starbucks who do not sponsor the podcast (laughs) although they should Although they should they sponsor everything else in my life <laughs> they they contribute to me getting uh, they're they're my uh, David Allen they uh, the only help you get I, things done <laughs> the only reason I get things done well speaking speaking of, of Starbucks um, and the season so I um, uh, because it was a crappy day and because I had stuff to do I, I did not go to Starbucks I just made a Starbucks via because again um, they should sponsor the podcast um, but uh, a very special thing happened this week in New Jersey, and that is that it's now eggnog season. Ah, it is. So uh, we have eggnog in the fridge, and so uh, I made a uh, eggnog uh, VF, which is, uh, I can't make it with all eggnog. I made it with uh, half eggnog and half milk, and then, so a quarter eggnog, in case case anybody really cares, a quarter eggnog, quarter milk, and half uh, water, and that's pretty good. Um, but but for my second my second beverage my podcast beverage I just went with the the one percent milk because uh, you know just calories just yeah do you so I don't like eggnog is that is that weird I, I, I I'm, like I'm, I'm pretty sure that's uh, that's grounds for detenuring you man yeah you probably you would never have done this podcast had you know had I known yeah I don't know I just I, there's something there's something too eggy about it. I, I understand that. You know, I once a uh, friend, uh, I guess, uh, whatever, uh, uh, pe- people that we used to be, people that people my, used to be friends with, people that my ex-wife and I used to be friends with, who are very nice people, um, uh, once invited us to a holiday party and uh, they made homemade eggnog and that was disgusting and it was way too eggy. But the, uh, the commercial eggnog, I find not, not so eggy. Well, it's a funny. It's a funny one. My grand, my grandparents. I feel like they lived on eggnog, and so huh. I remember as a child, 
that you know they would drink they would make homemade so, egg, so eggnog all year round so you, you do, they do have it in canada it's, this is not a canadian thing that no, it, that no this is not a, yeah okay this is we still have the can we, we still have this stuff in canada. oh look and it, it says right on wikipedia eggnog is traditionally consumed throughout canada and the united states so yeah. it's it's not even on wikipedia so i wasn't sure whether to believe you but uh, um, oh and and, and and there's a lovely picture of Le de Pou. Le de Pou, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Le de Pou Poulet. Yeah. Mm, I'll just, I'm just going to call it Le de Pou. Le de Pou. Um, <laughs> or poop milk. Yeah, literally the English the milk of the hen. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, it's not uh, it's not my thing. But, yeah, no, like my, my grandparents would make it all year round. Huh. And, and so uh, between – this is uh, – I, I would spend – um, you know, my, my, my parents, my parents both, um, you know, both work full time and my grandparents were retired and they lived, uh, four streets over from us. And so it was close to my elementary school. So I would go to the, my, you know, my dad would drop me off there in the morning. I would walk to my school. I would walk home there and then they, you know, my parents would come at five o'clock or five thirty and pick me up. So there were these, you know, three or four hours a day, maybe not that. And I had lunch there as well, but I was, I'd hang out with my grandparents and, and, and drink eggnog. And they would drink eggnog and eat pickled beets. That's, <laughs> oh, that's gross. It is. It's totally gross. That was it. And and my grandmother would make a a, a salad. If you know, I, I have, I'm using my Richard fingers uh, at this point. And a salad for her was um, uh, cucumber that was sliced with um, sliced onions, white onions only, uh, and uh, doused in vinegar. That was that was a salad. So uh, um, that, that sounds not bad. That's not good. It's not good. No, it's not healthy. Uh, I mean, you know, ish. It was, yeah, I, I just, the, I didn't even know that there could be lettuce and salads um, <laughs> until much later in life when I was exposed to it elsewhere. But yeah, so I, I, th- those are the things from my from my youth that I remember. A lot of pickled pickled beets, eggnog, and uh, cucumber vinegar salad. <laughs> so I don't, and it's it it turns my stomach now just thinking of it. <laughs> I, it's weird though. Yeah, it's it's, it's too eggy because they let her, mm. literally they were making it homemade mm. all the time. Yeah, my my grandfather also used to drink buttermilk, mm. which I don't know if that's normal, but you know I Some, use buttermilk in cooking. But he would he would like literally be eating it or drinking it himself. Yeah, no, there there are people that drink it just as a as a beverage. Doesn't doesn't appeal to me. It's a little bit too uh, too bitter, too or sour for me. So yeah, yeah. not my thing. Mm. Um. But you know what? Uh, according to Wikipedia and also personal experience, you know what else is good in eggnog? Whiskey. What? Oh, hey, where where isn't whiskey good? <laughs> on a on a pacifier. <laughs> where, I mean, it's 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 a cure all. Yeah, give it to your pets. Yeah. Um, so this, I think this is the time of the podcast. We, we should talk- we, we should we should say Ben that we don't actually recommend giving whiskey to small <laughs> children or pets. Or pets, no. <laughs> just just Wikipedia does. Does I'm it sure. really? Well, I don't know if it does, but we'll add it in there <laughs> just to, just to cover cover ourselves. Um, this is the time of of the podcast where we talk about our drinks, obviously. Mm. And um, on uh, on Saturday night, um, I posted some stuff on on the interwebs. Uh, but but Danny and I went to see um, may what may still be my very favorite band of all time that I've seen live. Um, I don't know, fifteen or so times. Sloan, 
And Sloan, um, we, you shared with me and, and I've listened that, uh, that Merlin man is, is a huge Sloan fan. Yes. Um, I, my, my love of Sloan, Sloan goes back to high school. Um, and, uh, I, so they, they came to Carborough, North Carolina, which is really just Chapel Hill. I don't know the geography of Carborough and, and Chapel Hill. It's very confusing to me that there are two downtowns that are less than 200 yards apart and they're the same city to me, but, but the people that live in Carborough are very much, uh, feel that it's different. <laughs> And probably because their mail says different things on it. Like, but, um, so Sloan came to, to Carbro, played a, uh, a, a place called the cat's cradle back room, not the front room at the cat's cradle. And there were uh, 200 people there and it was, uh, a, like a thriving scene. It was awesome. It was really, really good. So, um, but beforehand we, Danny and I went, went for dinner, um, on recommendation of, um, one of my uh, uh, staff members slash students, Ashley Chaffetz, we went to um, a place called Carburitos and had a ridiculously good margarita at Carburitos. Huh. So I, I'll tell you a, a, some drink re- recommendations that our friend Renee Boyer um, shared with me at one point. Um, so I, I'm, I, like, I like a good margarita. And she said that it's a waste of, of my time and money not you know, buying a house margarita with poor tequila. Oh, totally. I agree 100%. <laughs> so I, since, since, I, since she shared this information with me, I had been drinking very poor margaritas for a long time. Um, I had a really good one. And then that was the same thing that I had uh, – uh, Danny and I had on Saturday night was this – margarita with patron and it was so smooth it was it was awesome mm. it's like the difference between a um a single malt and a blend um although sometimes you can get a good single malt i don't know it was yeah but no i i um uh having discovered blend. patron silver that's like the only tequila i i, I want I, that's like the lowest i'll go in terms of tequila quality now so uh, well i so now i look forward to what what a higher step is because the patron is uh it was pretty awesome um i it it, it makes a difference it's like it, it's like the difference between a five dollar bottle of wine and a fifteen dollar bottle of wine it's a big step it's exponential <laughs> it's yes <fast. laughs> yes it's an log, a log increase it's a log increase so um so anyway it was yeah we we had a really um a really good time without our children and and went to this concert, and, and they were they were amazing. Um, and we rocked out. And we'll, I'll link to to everything that I can Sloan wise. But uh, I am I, as as I've shared with you in the past. There are certain times when I'm listening to music that I'm all in on a band, like I was maybe three months ago with the Rolling Stones, and that's all I was listening to for the most part of the last three weeks. I've, we've listened to nothing but Sloan. Well, as as you have to do because you're in preparation for the concert. Exactly, exactly. But I didn't have a Sloan overload where yesterday we also listened to Sloan. Like, I, I feel like I'm going to be in this for the next couple of weeks, hmm. Hmm. but they were awesome. Don, they were so good. So I've heard they, um, I don't know. So there, there's a band who, who probably is very good called guided by voices. Do you know hmm. of them? i Merlin talks about them all the time. So I, 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 I've heard of them. I've never heard their stuff, but they apparently broke up. Hmm. Um, and we're supposed to play on Saturday night in Chapel Hill or Carbo as well. Um, and so Sloan did two Guided by Voices covers, hmm. and they were it was really good. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I we 
<laughs> my my touches of greatness with Sloan are are, are somewhat. Um, the, I could we could really just call this the Sloan podcast. Uh, I'm sure that'll be fascinating for those who are tuning in for Food Safety Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, uh, w- the drummer from Sloan. Um, dated one of my high school teachers when oh. they were in high school. So wow. that was cool. Yeah, I know. It's like one degree of separation from from greatness. Um, and then uh, one of the, the guys, sort of the lead guy, his name's Chris Murphy. Mm-hmm. Um, we Danny and I used to go to this uh, uh, antique market uh, south of Guelph when we lived in Guelph. It was, it was called the Aberfoyle Antique Market. It was awesome. So, you know, kind of Saturday and Sunday afternoon, we just stroll around. There's all these vendors selling stuff. And it was we bought a lot of, you know, coffee tables and things that were salvaged there. And Danny redid them. And we used to take our dog, Jewel. And uh, Jewel was um, not really into people. She's, she definitely was not aggressive. She was very, very timid. You met Jewel, right? Mm. We took her for a walk. Yeah, she, this was the, yeah. the dog that didn't like to walk on the floor. Yes, she would not walk <laughs> on the hardwood floor. Yeah. So we had to set up this patchwork of, of carpets and runners so she could get from one side of the house to the other. Um, and uh, she, uh, she was a, um, a coon hound but did not... Um, in, in the entire time that we had her, we heard her howl once. Hmm. Um, and so we were at the Aberfoyle uh, Antique Market walking walking around, and lo and behold, Chris Murphy from Sloan um, rolls up in front of us, and Jewel um, takes a very timid back step. And I'm not sure why. He's not an intimidating guy. but um, And uh, he looked down and goes, dog, just be cool. Because <laughs> this is what rock and roll guys do, right? Just be mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. So we've we've often used that term uh, over and over again. It's like, remember when Chris Murphy told our dog to just be cool? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so anyway, Sloan, amazing, um, yeah, great, greatest uh, greatest concert I've seen in in a long, 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 long time. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe ever, but only because it was just very uh, fresh in my mind that I say that. Yeah, no, it's that's that's good. It's, I saw the pictures on Facebook. I'm glad you guys had a good time. Oh, it was awesome. It was. I, I may just do a Sloan podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not today. Not today. <laughs> so what do you what have, what have you been up to? What's going on in, in the life? Oh well, you know, as you know, I don't I don't really leave the house <laughs> to go to concerts or I anything love like that. that. Though. Yeah. This is um, <laughs> so. Uh, I'm all over that. I have been uh, I have been uh, 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 playing this uh, video game that uh, uh, for the iPhone. It's not really a video game. This uh, this this game, I guess you could call it, on the iPhone called Monument Valley. And I think we talked about it when it first came out. And it's it's basically a, a puzzle game. <clears throat> and they came out with a uh, two dollar in app purchase uh, for people to upgrade to new levels in the game. And I just finished playing the. Uh, through the, the the upgraded setup levels and it's very it's very good as um, um, as I think we discussed the first time um, it's kind it's very much inspired by the paintings of MC Escher yes. um, which uh, I think as we pointed out is is weird Al's favorite uh, MC <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, you know, we'll link to uh, white and nerdy, uh, the, the weird Al video here, but it's, it's, that's been, it's been a lot of fun. And actually, and the other thing that happened, uh, one week ago today, Ben was my birthday. Oh, that's right. Happy belated so, birthday. Thanks. And uh, I got the best birthday present ever. Um, uh, on the last week's, uh, back to work, I got a very, very nice shout out from, uh, Dan Benjamin and, uh, Merlin Mann talking about.
about uh, the barbecue that I ate with Dan. And, uh, and, and again, Merlin uh, plugged the podcast for us. So uh, I haven't looked at the uh, numbers to see if that made any kind of a difference. But uh, thanks to thanks to Dan for, of course, for having uh, uh, lunch with me, Dan and Hattie for having lunch with me, and then also for uh, Merlin and Dan for mentioning it on the podcast. And um, also for, you know, the great text messages that I get uh, that I get from them now. <laughs> Asking me all sorts of important questions. I think you should share the the one that, that you got and you forwarded to me because it's pretty awesome. Uh, yeah, I did. I posted it on my uh, on my Tumblr, so we will we will link to uh, my that post on, on my on my Tumblr post uh, uh, with uh, some really uh, you know um, interesting questions that we get asked sometimes uh, uh, because of our work as as food safety experts. So excellent, excellent. Um, and it's it's a uh, it's a valid question on um, what temperature do we need to cook poop to to, to actually be able to eat it? <laughs> yes. Um, so speaking of presents that people give other people, uh-huh. um, I got uh, a, like a really phenomenal present from my wife. Oh, um, like kind of out of nowhere, um, <laughs> which is which is cool, and I want to share it with with you. So. Um, there's this, this super cool coffee shop, um, in, in North Raleigh called Sola and it's like, uh, you're an independent place. They, um, uh, they, they have like a, a pop-up market once a month for local vendors. I get some t-shirts from some of the guys there. It's all about like sort of handmade, um, you know, local businesses. And one of the vendors who's there is a guy who writes poems. And so you, you for five dollars, oh. it's it's pretty phenomenal. He yeah. has this old school typewriter, and I'm sure mm. it's something historic. And I don't know what the model is or anything, but I I could find out for those who are interested. But you you walk in and and you give him five dollars, and he says, "Tell me uh, what you want this poem to be about." And um, and then you go get your coffee, your lunch, and you come out, and there's a poem for you. Wow, and that's that's awesome. It's it's super cool, and so. Um, what Danny uh, asked him to write about was uh, barf. <laughs> of course. And, and so um, I'm going to send you a picture of this. The I'm going to I'll read you a couple of excerpts. How uh, long is the poem? It is a, a one page. It's got to be uh, 300 words. Wow. 200, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. So um, here here is uh, as as written by Matthew Allen Roth, barf for Ben from Danielle. It is a slim distinction, things that make us barf. We barf things up. Uncooked chicken would much prefer to be digested, but we reject it. We are picky, and our thumbs down is dramatic. The micro fiesta in full-bellied swing is invitation only. A young man may be belt and collar lifted through a bar's doorway by big, burly, big bouncers. His fake idea, reminder for the shredder. When we throw E. coli... Out of the party, we make a funny sound first. Hup. <laughs> and it goes on. It's really quite quite amazing. Oh. Uh, at some point, he uh, – I, I don't know where, where it came from. He includes a, a line about the Stanley Cup. And and Danny says to him afterwards, said, did I tell you that he likes hockey? And he goes, no, is it okay that I include the Stanley Cup? So, yeah, he's going to love it. Um, so, so, anyway, she uh, – um, uh, she, it's in my office here uh, on campus now, and it's it's pretty awesome. So it's 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 just a cool like. Who would think 
that there would be a market to write, you know, poems in, in 10 minutes. And, 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 it, and it's phenomenal. It's like the coolest thing that, you know, you just walk up and be like, oh, here's, it's, it's much better than a caricature drawing, right? Like a big head, someone sitting in a car with mm-hmm. a tennis racket. Um, this is, uh, it's very personal. It was really cool. So I that think was, he's, I think he's undercharging. Oh, I think he's totally undercharging. Um, he, uh, Danny, Danny talked to him and said that he um, he actually used to just do it for free. <laughs> like he <laughs> that was definitely up. undercharging. Yeah, and because he just like liked to do it, um, and he uh, like he's got a you know a job, but this is just what he does on Saturdays. So oh, that's uh, awesome. It was it's super super awesome. So um, so if anybody is uh, at a place called Sola or in Raleigh, uh, look up this uh, this guy Matthew Allen Roth. It was uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, so that was my – That's Danny said that was my Christmas, pre- Christmas present. No, that's a very nice present. It was really nice. Uh, should we talk about food safety? We should. Or, or things that are – things that are barf – barfy? Yeah, sure. Um, so I um, – I like first of all this is the for the back end of uh, of our of our life. Um I love the new workflow that you've created for us. <laughs> like I okay. really do. It's, it's it's awesome. So so we Don mentioned this earlier that um we used to have this uh text file show notes that we would add to but um but now we we just print off pages uh and as PDFs and throw them in Dropbox and we look at them it's it's good. It's uh, it, it works. It fits fantastically. Um so here is what I wanted to um, uh, talk about that I, I sent you this early, late, late last week, I guess, um, about a uh, blog post that um, uh, was, was written by um, uh, ABC Research Laboratories. Um, and it was a, an interview with uh, ABC Research Laboratories Chief uh, Scientific Officer Jillian Dagan. Um, and so, so their their blog post um, really was kind of like, here are five food safety things that um, that I, I didn't know until I was a food scientist or uh, until I was in food safety. And uh, it really is, you know, kind of like, okay, here are here are some things that are risky, and and ABC um, uh, laboratories, research laboratories, they're um, you know pretty pretty big outfit in in Florida, and they do a lot of diagnostics and, and some good you know some some good folks there. But I had I guess I had an issue with um, with one of the things that that um, that they interviewed um, Jillian about. So uh, she she talks about um, sprouts uh, as an issue. Um, she talks about hand washing, proper record keeping in a um, in, in a food safety realm. Um, but the, you know the first one that, that they highlight or she highlights is raw honey, and so the passage mm. that you know that she has is we all have fond memories of our grandparents when we were younger. Uh, Dr. Dagan remembers when her grandfather kept bees. She was fascinated by the beehives and loved it when he would lift one of the trays and break off a piece of fresh honeycomb for her to enjoy on the spot. Now she knows better. As much as she loved that as a kid, she probably wouldn't do that for her daughter. When she was younger, she didn't know that raw honey is, a, is at risk for botulism and should be pasteurized much like milk. Pasteurized honey is safe honey. And uh, I, I, I disagree with that from what I know about honey. And it's not that honey is not at risk for botulism. That that part is is true for, for you know, and especially for infants. Um but pasteurizing doesn't do anything for that risk. 
So you know what what we what we kind of know at least and, and totally I want I want to throw this to you to see what what your thoughts are on it. But um, the the issue with infant botulism is ingesting the spore itself, not a not a toxin. And in in the child, uh, you know, in an infant's um, gut, uh, the uh, acidity level in the gut isn't um, isn't uh, you know the pH isn't low enough um, to keep that spore from. Um, germinating and then, um, you know, outgrowth and, and toxin formation. So, you know, the thought is that infant botulism is, is linked to, you know, just, just the consumption of, uh, of honey, not pasteurized, not filtered, not unfiltered, any of that stuff. The spores are, are so, um, uh, hardy. I mean, that's why bacteria go, um, you know, form spores is so when they're, when they're stressed, they're in an environment that's not, not great for growth. They, they have a lot of protection. And so, um, the, the pasture for, so I look, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I hate to call people on stuff without figuring out exactly, um, what the, what the science says and what the data says. Um, they're, the U.S. National Honey Board recommends pasteurizing. You know, they have guidance for if you're going to pasteurize your honey, 170 degrees Fahrenheit for a few seconds or 145 degrees for 30 minutes. And neither of those um, sets of, of pasteurization steps are going to do anything to inactivate those spores. And and there was actually – I don't know if you're, you're familiar with this document, but the New Zealand Food Safety Authority – or the former New Zealand Food Safety Authority, they're now something else. Um, but they had this really nice, what they call risk, risk profile of um, botulism in, in honey. Um, and it's, it's like a 70-page document that, that basically goes through all the, um, all the literature that's out there. Um, and they, um, you know, they basically say at, at their big conclusion that the normal cooking temperatures will destroy vegetative cells, um, but we don't expect to the, them to be in honey in the first place because the low water activity um, and commercially available honey might be pasteurized, but pasteurization is not sufficient to destroy the spores. So, so I kind of, I mean, I, I guess that's basically the story that, that I, that I said um, and posted on, on barf blog and, um, and then Dr. Dagan, um, Jillian re- responded and said, um, you know, my daughter's four years old. Um, I, you know, I agree with the infant aspect, um, of not getting a honey until one year of age. Um, but she wasn't going to, she still says that I'm not going to feed my four year old unpasteurized honey. <laughs> and I was, I'm still, I'm confused, I guess. I don't know what the, maybe am I, am I missing something, Don? Well, um, you're also missing the fact that uh, when when Dr. Dagan very nicely uh. commented on the post, she also <laughs> pointed out some spelling errors, which does not add to your credibility. Um, but My um, credibility? <laughs> thanks, thanks, Don. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but uh, but no, you're 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 absolutely right. I mean, uh, pasteurization. Uh, I, I think again, haven't reviewed the literature, but I I bet uh, you know hundreds of dollars that it does nothing to destroy botulism spores. And you also make the point in the blog post that because of the low water activity environment, I question whether it's going to have any effect on things like salmonella either. So, I mean, certainly it's Dr. Dagan's right to feed whatever she wants to her child. And I'm glad that she's, you know, it certainly seems like she's making a conservative decision by, by choosing to only feed her child pasteurized honey, but I really don't think she's having any effect on risk. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's. that's I mean, kind of where I was where I was coming from. Yeah, and I, I guess I'd ask the question: Why? Why is honey pasteurized? And and maybe it's pasteurized to to control mold spores. But again, I, I wonder the effectiveness of any pasteurization in such a low water activity environment. We know for, from you know research has shown over and over again, uh, pasteurization is not effective in low water activity, you know, low water content environments like peanut butter, like honey, like, like those kinds of products. It, yeah, exactly. And, and it is really low water activity. So I looked, uh, you looked it up, um, from the references in the New Zealand food safety authority document, it's between 0.56 and 0.62. Um, and, um, so I, I do know a little bit more after sort of jumping through this this world of honey on why someone might pasteurize honey, and it's it's to reduce the likelihood of fermentation. So it's a it's a yeast issue um, that that can happen over a long sort of storage time. So, but but that's uh, to me that's not a it, it's it's not like it, it sort of says in here that raw honey is that food is a food at risk for botulism. It's it raw honey and pasteurized honey are a food at risk for botulism when feeding it to an infant. <laughs> yes. It, well, and an infant or anyone with an altered GI yeah. tract, right? So it's the issue is that uh, if you, if your GI tract is not fully colonized or is, you know, if you've been taking antibiotics or if you have, uh, I don't know, maybe gastric bypass surgery might, might uh, have an impact here. I, I, again, I don't know, but if you, if you have anything, you know, altered or wrong with your GI tract that you don't have a normal healthy microflora in your GI tract, you shouldn't be eating honey. Bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. You uh, way, way back on the podcast, you had talked about, um, a paper, um, if, if I remember correctly, showing increased risk of foodborne illness. And I totally could be paraphrasing this, but after taking, um, like antacids, do you remember? Do you remember oh, something yeah. about that? Yeah. So I, I mean, I wonder if that, that I hadn't sort of thought about it until you just you just mentioned. I wonder if that also could increase the likelihood of those um, bot spores uh, germinating because that I assume that that antacids are changing the the acidity level. I don't know how much, but well, uh, yeah, but you have to yeah, you have to separate the stomach where the antacids are working versus the GI tract where <sighs> you know the the lower or upper lower intestine. I'm not sure which. So, but gotcha. again, bottom line, it's complicated, right? It is. It is. Um, and uh, I, it, there's the more that I read, I, I don't know why I've just kind of glommed onto this infant botulism world. Um, I've written, I don't know, 10 or 15 blog posts about it in the last few years, mainly because it's it's always a very, like, emotional kind of story where there's a kid who's a year old or, or close to a year old or under a year that all of a sudden becomes, you know, very lethargic and it takes a while for health, uh, you know, the healthcare providers to figure out what caused this this illness and then someone kind of clues in and says, oh, maybe, you know, because a you know, one-year-old doesn't, isn't, I mean, they're not the greatest communicators, so they can't say things like, oh, I'm paralyzed. Oh, my tongue's not working. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then so it, ta- it seems like there's this long-term kind of thing. And then finally, the, um, w- once it's diagnosed and the antitoxins um, applied, it, there's, there's this long recovery. And it's, and it's always like you know, it, it's, it, it's a very, I guess, emotional thing. So I've, you know, I've kind of tried to follow that and understand the, the most about it. And it's, 
kind of interesting. There's some stuff out there in the literature on honey consumption and it's for infants specifically um, and uh, under a year and, and um, increased risk of SIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just and, – and it's weird. I, I don't know. I mean I don't know how much you've looked into this, but some of the um, – there's not been either epidemiology or um, cases that, that we can see in the literature associated with other – low water activity, high sugar products like corn syrup, for instance. Although Larry Bouchot's got some stuff from a long time ago that showed um, uh, you know, the recovery of, of CBOT spores from, from stuff like corn syrup and molasses. So it's, it, there's something about honey that, that, that seems to be associated with, um, with infant botulism that we don't see with other things. And it's, I mean, I just find that fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and and we'll we'll try to find uh, somewhere where we, we can link to that. I know I know the article that you're familiar with uh, that you're that you're. I'm familiar with the article that you mentioned where uh, Larry and I think it was maybe it was Don Cowder Senior from FDA or maybe it was Heim Solomon from FDA um, where they went out and they surveyed uh, various low water activity products, including honey, for the presence of botulinum spores, and they found it in all of these products. Yeah. and and maybe maybe the issue. <clears throat> Again, you know, talking about bring it back to talking about risk and and the importance of denominators, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute too, because that's a segue to the thing I want to talk about next. But thinking about um, like like if it may be the risk, the perceived risk or the perceived association with honey is higher just because there is this old wives' tale about feeding honey to infants, right? So like if you have a colicky baby, you give it honey. Um, that that uh, uh, culture or that that uh, old wives' tale does, is not around uh, feeding corn syrup or molasses or maple syrup or, or whatever. It's only around honey. So it may just be that more people feed honey because it's just a, a thing that people know to do or or incorrectly know to do, right? So it may just be that the exposure, I guess to put it in epidemiology terms, the exposure is greater. Yeah, absolutely. And um so, so the, just by multiplying that exposure by by the um, you know by the risk, uh, you'll you'll see more cases. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's inter- It's an interesting one. Anyway, I I I, I disagreed with, with with the good doctor's um, suggestion, and and I and and I still wasn't super happy with the response. So I don't know, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe, maybe there's something out there that Jill's seeing that, that I'm not seeing, but I, I don't think it's botulism. Well, and you know, one of the things that <clears throat> while you were t- uh, talking, I did a little bit of research, um, here on the internet as you do. And by research, I mean, Googling stuff. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, and I found the national honey board, um, uh, fact sheet on shelf stability, shelf life and stability of honey. And they do talk about pasteurization, but there's a very important, uh, phrase here in, in the document. Um, uh, and it says that pasteuriz- what, it, uh, so, so pasteurization delays the process of crystallization by dissolving any crystals that may be present in the crude product. So honey processors, pasteurized honey to extend shelf life 
because of a physical manifestation. It has, n- and this is also pasteurization affects yeast cells, which considerably reduces the possibility of fermentation. Okay, but that's why pasteurization of honey is taking place primarily to control this physical defect of of crystallization, not because of any food safety issues and maybe some slight. Uh, microbiology issues. Um, but again, I would question whether pasteurization really has that much of an effect on yeast either, again, without, without seeing the, the literature. Mm. So it's, here's an esoteric question for you. Don. Mm. Sure. Is, is it still pasteurization if it's not controlling a microbe? Like, well, is it just heat treatment? Yeah, that's, you know, I, that's a really good question. And I would, uh, that, that same thought occurred to me. Now, I guess nominally if you're controlling yeast, yeast it is, but, yeah. but yeah, I, why, I mean, well, and I think, I think, uh, our good friends at the food and drug administration have some rules yeah. about when you can call something pasteurization and this would not meet those rules. It's really interesting. And I mean, here's the, here's the fallout of that or, or, or the, you know, whatever happens is that you, you, I'm sure I know that there are honey producers out there that are marketing an unpasteurized honey product, right? Like, Mm -hmm. like as, like as a selling point for, for unfiltered for sure. But that unpasteurized um, aspect of it has, has got to have some value in, in a certain segment of the population's um, minds for for health reasons for whatever but clearly in this case it, it's it's really just a crystallization and maybe a yeast thing it's really mm-hmm. i mean this is crazy stuff mm-hmm. love it so th- this is this is true that's food safety talk right there that's uh if someone wants to ask us uh what what episode they should listen to to get an intro- introduction i think it's right here <laughs> the uh not yet published 74 um, so everybody listening to this, get right out there and uh, take and, care of that. And re-listen to this. Yes. One. Yeah. Um, hey, so you want to talk about other denominators? Well, before, I, yeah, before we do that, I want to talk about Ebola. Ooh. And one of the things that I put in the uh, Dropbox for us to discuss is a very recent blog post um, from Peter Sandman. And we've talked about Peter before. He's a, a former uh, faculty member at Rutgers, or I think he's a faculty member, uh, journalist and risk communication guy. And and I, I came across these – I think th- this blog post was recently published, but, but I was – over surfing over to, to Peter's um, website uh, called uh, uh, P Sandman, um, P Sandman dot. Uh, well, it's not on this page, but uh, but P Sandman dot org, I think, or P Sandman dot com, um, and we'll link to it in the in the show notes. But the reason why I was doing that was la- one of the things I lied when I said I never leave my house because last week I went to Chicago um, to be part of the McDonald's Food Safety Advisory Committee. And, and just a you know fascinating meeting with uh, McDonald's corporate people, McDonald's suppliers, as well as some guest speakers. And I can't, I can't talk about the specifics of what was said, but just say it was, uh, you know, rivaled the quality of an IAFP meeting in terms of the caliber of presentations and, and whatnot. But I was, and we've talked about this on the, the last podcast, I was asked to talk, um, a, a, the title of my talk was How to Talk About Risk. And um, uh, I shared your advice, Ben. Do you remember what your advice was to me? I, I do. Um, I, and actually, I... I'll, I, I will come back to that in a second. But I believe I, <laughs> believe I said um, talk about risk frankly. Frankly, right. Yeah. So so you were the second slide um, in my <laughs> deck um, where I just had the word frankly. 
fantastic. In big letters. Did you use, um, by any chance, like American typewriter font? Uh, I, I, di- I, di- I used a, a, a serif font. I'll, okay. I'll send you the slide deck and you can tell me whether it was American typewriter. Because I'll tell you, here's um, – let me, let me jump in here for a second. Uh-huh. I also gave a talk uh, two weeks ago after we had this talk uh-huh. uh, uh, to the Sackler Institute in, in uh, Manhattan with, with mm-hmm. some esteemed mm-hmm. friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a 15-minute um, slot on how to talk about – how to do food safety risk communication. And I told them that I, you and I had a conversation and what I arrived at was frankly. So I have a slide that <laughs> says frankly. That's great. <laughs> very cool. Um, and then, and then what I said was, and that was all that Ben would tell me. So he wasn't very much help. And that, <laughs> and that got a laugh from the audience. So thank you for being, uh, for, for featuring in, in a joke that got a laugh from Perfect. me. So, and then I, I went on and I talked a little bit about, about Peter Sandman and um, you know, some of his uh, hazard uh, outrage stuff, which I think is a useful thing. But again, this is not my, my field, not my competency. And so then I went on to talk about risk assessment and I talked specifically about uh, something I think which I had, had shared with you and Doug by email about a risk assessment that I did where I sort of had a failure in risk communication where the, the company receiving the results of the risk assessment really uh, just didn't get it. And and, that, and we used that as a discussion point for my, my conversation with folks at the McDonald's meeting. So I think it was, I think the talk went well. I got, I got a bunch of laughs and I did get some I get a good good question from Mike Doyle at the end. So, um, but so the the back to Peter Sandman and Ebola. So he wrote uh, this um, blog post or this this post uh, f- uh, f- on November fifteenth. So just posted a few days ago, um, and we'll link to that post. But um, but Peter is not happy. So right now the number of Ebola cases in the United States, according to many measures, is zero. Um, and and so he and again I'll read to you a couple things, and then I want to ask your your opinion. So so he says first of all, Ebola in the United States has turned out awfully well so far. So he's so he's he's happy about that, that everything's turned out well. But he says that in his opinion, the process was awful. What is he so unhappy about? Um, and he, he, he gives three points here. Dishonesty about both the on-the-ground facts of specific cases and the quality of the science underlying Ebola policy, where science is in Richard Fingers. Uh, misappropriation of science on behalf of questions that aren't scientific at all, especially the question of how safe is safe enough. And then endly, endless, nasty, unjustified ridicule of people's fears of, of its desire for more protective public policies and of state and local officials who instituted such policies. Um, so what I, – how, I don't know how closely you've been following Ebola, but what's your reaction to Peter's state of unhappiness? Um, I, I get um – you know, just just in in those in those three bullets, I I really get um, the first two bullets um, a, a lot, and mm-hmm. and this I, I mean this the second part of of our conversation about how to talk about risk. After I did say frankly, I said talk about uncertainty, mm-hmm. um, and, and and that you know I, I guess the talk about the things we know and the things that we don't know, and um, and, and share. I mean e- exactly what what he has. Um, on in his first bullet is those on the ground facts. What and looking at the at the Dallas case or Dallas situation specifically, where there was an individual who had Ebola and a healthcare um, worker who was um, uh, you know um, working with with that individual, then also um, ended up with uh, with with the case. Um, 
that that one what how did that you know how did that happen and and the cdc's actually been fairly good and you know we we talked uh, um a little bit about this when we were in person uh, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago uh, about um kind of saying okay we thought that we had good guidelines out uh, out there but the Im- implementation of those guidelines um at at the primary health care facilities um may we may not have been able we may not have equipped them well enough um to 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 carry these these things out but but again we're we're still grasping just like we do in some of these outbreak investigations in food safety at 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 guessing the assumptions you know playing that that game so i i mean i totally agree with with peter there um i think the the misappropriation of the science uh situation is is really well um, characterized with some of the quarantine um, visa situations where where there are, are broad stroke um, uh, policies or um, situations put in place that that aren't really based they're not there for risk reduction reasons they're there um, for political reasons and I think that that builds more outrage um, uh, in, in, in a certain segment of the population that's looking for, you know, for, for why. Um, but I don't, I, I guess I don't know on the, on his third bullet, uh, on the, um, na- endless, nasty and unjustified ridicule of the public's fears. And, and maybe it's, and, you know, in, in his, um, in his blog post, he, he gives, um, not a whole lot of, of, ex- of examples, um, on that, other than um, the, I think him he's fo- he focuses on the health officials being very reassuring, talking about um, we we are you know very confident that we won't have cases. I I, I don't read that as um, ridicule of public fears, but but I but I guess I guess he does. I mean that's that's the one that I just don't I, I don't know I don't see. I agree with the other ones a lot. Yeah, yeah, and I guess I would say. I, I did see some of that, maybe not by um, uh, state and local officials, but certainly by scientific types. I did see yes. that on Twitter, and I participated in it because I, I thought it was a little bit – I'm not sure it was un, unjustified. And again, and Peter and I can, can could have a debate about that. Um, and it, he's a, I think he's a bit over the top with endless nasty and unjustified. Maybe it's unjustified. Maybe it's nasty. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that th- those are all words that we can argue about the definition of, you know. So, um, but certainly I did see that. And again, it's good to, you know, nobody likes to hear how they're wrong or how they got something wrong. But but I think there there's something there. But yeah, you're right. He did he didn't uh, as you mentioned. There's no he doesn't point to specific places where that happened. So. No, and and I, I'm, and I think you're 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 probably right that um, if we look in the social media realm, especially those, um, you know, might might be the science community, but also might be the the media and other um, individuals who who are, I guess, propagating not propagating but um, ridicule. I, I mean, I'll use I'll use this word, but I just I don't see that I don't see that in the in the public health messaging at all like like oh you're you're silly to be to be worried about this um in fact i think um i, I think cdc's done done a, a fairly decent job since the the dallas um incident um and, and and they really came out 
um, strongly against the, um, you know, your, your home state of, of New Jersey and, uh, and the situation in Maine with, uh, with, with our bike riding nurse, Mm -hmm. um, that said, look, this is that, that, this is not a, um, the, what, what your political stance or what your political decision isn't, isn't really based on science like you, um, like you think it is. And and we think it's ridiculous or whatever. I mean, they didn't say that, but, um, so, so I don't know. I mean, I guess, um, I, I, there's, I, I agree that things could have been handled, um, a lot better, um, on the, uh, in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I, I very much appreciate his second bullet point, the the fact that the question how safe is safe enough yeah. is not a scientific question, right? Yeah. So, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's good. It's a good point. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. So I think I think that that's. I mean, we could go on and talk about his his post some more. It's very good. We will link to it. It's it's long, but it's it's really worth reading. Um, uh, this is a guy who really thinks deeply and apparently is an outstanding typist. I mean, this is really long, really long, um, and very, but incredibly well written. So the guy's a good writer, and he he writes. Cle- I think you know I, I don't mind reading long pieces as long as they're written clearly, and this is without a doubt written written yeah. very. Clearly clearly so well well worth uh, well worth reading so um um and then we were going to segue to talking about denominators um uh and well and again just i guess to just to sort of talk about um you know the one of the key points that i that i made in in my remarks last week in chicago were that you need to think about denominators when you think about risk right so it's not um it's not just enough to uh to think that the risk is low and well let me uh uh let me just give me a minute here and i will find um the uh the the slide that that has it because there's some really good um really good uh, comments or really bad comments that that uh, I want to I want to spend some time and talk about. Um, uh, you know, again uh, and again, the the point in my in my slides was that our intuition about risk is is often wrong. That's why we do quantitative risk assessments. So, um, and here were some comments that were made to me about the risk assessment that I did. Um, the fact that we have almost a two log reduction and only a one log inoculation, we should have a fairly low risk. Well. Number one, if those two statements are true, no, the risk wouldn't be low. And number two, they must have misunderstood the one log inoculation because that wasn't at all what I what I said in the risk assessment. It was a one cell um, in in a small number of servings. So, um, and then again, assuming less than 100 uh, percent contamination and a two log reduction, um, how many pieces would a person have to consume to get ill? Well, the answer to that is one, one. piece. <laughs> Um, and then my favorite comment of all time on any work that I've ever done, if you do a random walk regression type analysis, the odds have got to be impossibly low. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what that is. And, uh, the answer is no. <laughs> so, um, and then actually Mike, uh, Mike Doyle made a very good point, um, talking about the Cadbury outbreak. So there was a candy outbreak uh, in uh, Cadbury products where apparently they went to somebody from Oxford or Cambridge and, uh, this guy or gal, a person crunched the numbers for them and told them that the, the odds of an outbreak with that product were very, very low. They shipped the product anyway, and they shipped the product and, uh, lo and behold caused an outbreak. So, um, you know, 
we you really have to be careful um, how you go about calculating risk. And I think again, one of the recurring themes on this on this podcast is the importance of a dose response function and the fact that for infectious organisms like salmonella, even one cell can uh, can make you sick. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The um, and, and I mean, just just to come back to the Sandman discussion mm-hmm. and, and and what you know what what I think I was uh, trying to um, convey at, at my session uh, in in uh, New York City uh, a couple of weeks ago was that that what we've just talked about for um, you know eight minutes doesn't really fit well on a uh, on a label <laughs> and it, you know the 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 whole idea of of risk is is a, a conversation um not not just here's here's the situation it's not, it's complicated don it's complicated Indeed. i don't know what, i don't know what else i'm trying to say um so can i guess that your denominator um question is is re- related to um hepatitis e um, in, in, well, yeah, I mean, the, the denominator was just sort of a general, a general segue, but we could talk about hep E. I think that would be uh, really, uh, uh, really interesting. Let's talk about hep E. So there's a couple of things that have happened in the last, uh, last couple of weeks about, um, prevalence of hepatitis E as an emerging foodborne pathogen. And, and there was a paper, um, in, uh, what's, uh, emerging infectious, infectious diseases. diseases. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, um, about it, and so so this was uh, something that that came out. This is in the, um, uh, the August two thousand and twelve um, um, uh, edition of uh, of EID, um, and it's about hepatitis E virus in the pork food chain in the United Kingdom two thousand and nine two thousand and ten, um, and 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 basically from um, from this from this paper. Um, with a, a, I guess a fairly small survey, um, it was it, it was found that there you know that there is some hepatitis A E uh, in that in that pork um, in, in the pork chain, and uh, so the authors this is from, uh, by uh, Berto et al. Um, they they did some um, uh, surface swabbing hand swabbing uh, in handlers uh, in the pork chain um, and mainly at slaughterhouses and processing plants uh, and then also um, took took samples um, of you know feces in in the slaughterhouse liver surface swabs and then muscle meat and sausage um, and and showed uh, you know a little bit of hepatitis E this is uh, um, and you know just to, to go down like right down at point of sale um, Six out of sixty-three sausages that uh, that were sampled were positive for um, for hepatitis E, and that led to um, some you know some uh, some coverage like recently <laughs> uh, a couple of weeks ago on one in ten sausages carries a risk of hepatitis E virus. I am interested in this virus mainly because I can't find, and I, I, I've just done some sort of cursory searching and maybe someone from the CDC who um, does foodborne viruses can can help us out, but I, I can't see how many cases of hepatitis C happen in, in the U.S. every year. Do you do you know anything about it? Have you found, have you seen, are you interested in this? I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this. I'm, I, what interests me most, which I didn't realize until I just went and looked up the, the original article, 
was the timeline on all yeah. of this. So what what got me interested was a barf blog post. So we'll link to the barf blog post. The, the, the barf blog post has the headline, one in 10 UK sausages, quote, carries risk of hepatitis E virus. And then it says... Uh, UK official government figures show there were 124 confirmed cases of hepatitis E in 2003, which rose to 691 cases in 2013. There were 461 cases in the first six months of this year being 2012. So if you double that 800, 900 cases, so, okay, that looks like a interesting trend that is definitely going up. Um, but if one in 10 sausages has this risk, how many sausages are being eaten? And we should have a whole lot more cases. But again, of course, people are properly cooking their sausages. But let's. But I want to come back to the Emerging Infectious Diseases article, which, which again is an article that was published in 2012 yep. based on data that was collected in 2009 and 2010, okay? And they did, they did samples at the processing and cutting plant, so, you know, the processing plant, and they did samples at the point of sale. And what they – in the processing plant, they collected 40 – muscle samples, so 40 meat samples, and in those 40 samples, they had zero hepatitis E positive samples. So at point of sale in sausage, they had one in 10. The logical conclusion to me would be the contamination is happening at point of sale. It's not, it's not in the processing plant. And, and it may not be a food safety issue at all. It may be a worker sanitation issue because guess what? If you have more people with hepatitis E in the population, some of those people, in fact, I would argue maybe more than just the average based on the kind of person that works in in food in, in food operations, generally they are low, lower socioeconomic class and probably at increased risk of infection with hepatitis E. The contamination could be from worker sanitation at point of sale. So, I mean, it's a it's a nice headline, you know, but it's not, I just just this, there's just there's just too. I mean, if you start digging into it, it's just it's just doesn't make any sense. Well, and, and let me let me throw you another thought that I looked at when I when I read this paper was not that it was at a point of sale contamination, but the processing plant they they sampled just muscle. They mm-hmm. don't talk about trim mm-hmm. at all, and and I would say that muscle and sausage are probably not correlated, <laughs> right? Like they're, mm. they're looking at two different types of products. So, so if they, if they had, if they reported what the trim was, then we would have a better picture of, of maybe where it was, you know, where it was coming from. It sounds like, and again, I don't know enough about it. And this is, this is one that I'm, I, you know, I, I like, like Toxo, I keep, I keep my eye on hepatitis E. I find it really interesting that it's this, you know, this virus that, that seems to be associated with meat, with pork specifically. And, and it's, um, cases elsewhere are increasing, and I can't find any U.S. data on it. Um, but um, you know, but but it seems like it's uh, it's a problem in pork pork production. 
Um, and, and then it ultimately becomes this issue um, at, you know, at point of sale. But here, I guess here's some of the problems with, with uh, basing a large risk management decision or, or basing messaging on, um, on a EID paper like this is they really went to one plant. Right. Yeah. And they took surface swabs, 10 of them in those plants and 40 muscle. Like it's, it, it's not, it, it, we can, it's hard to draw conclusions from anything when you do it at one place. Um, and, and the point of sale is a little different. I mean, we don't, they don't describe sausage sources, whether it was ground um, on site, whether they were, you know, introducing this trim into sausage um, that came from from a processing plant, like that whole that whole story is missing here. But um, but I don't. I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I don't know what it what it means. I'm just really interested to see what the you know seems like 700 cases of hepatitis E in England and Wales is a lot, right? <laughs> or just under in 2013. Like if we had if we had 700 cases of Hep E in the U.S. That would be a lot to me, right? And 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 CDC does have a little bit of information on this. So, for example, um, they write that hepatitis E is believed to be uncommon in the United States. However, some studies have found a high prevalence of antibodies to HEV in the general population. When hepatitis E does occur, it is usually a result of travel to a developing country where hepatitis E is endemic. Um, thus far, a dozen cases have been reported among persons with no travel history to HEV hyperendemic countries. No clear exposure was identified for these domestically acquired non-travel related cases. So half a dozen, so a dozen cases, and this is from a CDC webpage with a date of, uh, 2012. So, um, you know, that's, uh, again, we'll, we'll link to that, but, um, you know, so it seems like certainly the risk in the U.S. seems to be lower than the risk in the U.K. And certainly the message of cook your sausages is a good message. Um, yeah. I guess it was it's in the U.K., so they would be cooked to a temperature of piping hot. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, piping hot and uh, to the she juices run clear. Run clear. Yeah. Um, but um, what actually, though, this this is actually pretty good. It says um, sausages should be cooked in the Barth blog post. Sausages should be cooked for 20 minutes at 70 degrees C. It's crazy. That's uh, <laughs> I, that's a really well done sausage. It is, but who knows? I mean, I just, uh, maybe that's what you need to, to do to inactivate hepatitis E and uh, sausages. Which, in which case, my God, I don't know. That's uh, people are not cooking their sausages that much, and no, yeah, I no. don't know. It's just there's just too there's too many there's a you know a, people it's people throw around numbers, but but then my job as a risk guy is to try to think about ways to link those numbers together in some way that makes sense. And this just this just makes me scratch my head, right? I'm just really I'm just confused by I'm confused by everything, right? I'm confused by like why now do we have this messaging around uh, 2012? article, which is based on 2010 data. Um, and where is HEV coming from in the UK, right? And, and, and is sausage implicated? And why is it so much worse? Than in the US. Than right. the US. Like what's, right. the, what's going on with their, hey, hey, hey John Bassett, what's, <laughs> what's going on with your dirty sausages? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I'm glad you put these in here, and um, because as I went back and looked at the study, it was like it just doesn't add up. And and also, 
what you know is it what whatever triggered this story is it that there's an increase in hepatitis e um and and so let's go back and look at what we know about hepatitis e well not a whole lot we know that you know one in 10 sausages or six out of 63 sausages that were sampled at retail stores had hepatitis e in it um back in 2009 and 2010 when the cases of hepatitis e in the population were quite a bit lower like Two-thirds lower. Okay. Well, and, and so if you, dig, if you dig a little further, okay, so there is, there is an article in Epidemiology and Infection from this year, from July, um, uh, where they did a case control study. And it says, hepatitis E virus in England and Wales, indigenous infection is associated with consumption of processed pork products. So there is actually a um, case control smoking gun in this, in this situation. So, so, that's, so that's good. So that's, that's uh, off the link from the government. UK site. And then they also report that a recent study found that 90% of British pigs were anti-HEV antibody positive. So in other words, the, the, a lot of uh, British pigs have been exposed to um, uh, HEPI and, and have antibodies against, against it. So, so that, that is certainly, that does, that does begin to point a, a case towards uh, uh, you know the, the 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 link makes sense right so the message about cooking your sausage does seem to kind of make sense here um so uh, maybe there's something there but but again i'm not really sure that one in 10 sausages carries a risk is really the right message i mean i guess maybe it is if if they if they really believe the case control study and they believe the prevalence in 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 the pork population is so high. I mean, I guess I yeah, I would ask the question: What's uh, HEV antibody incidence in U.S. pigs, and why why is HEV in British pigs more than in the U.S.? I don't know. Yeah, There's a lot of, a tough- lot, of, lot of questions, but but it's good it's good to know that there is this case control study because that does. Um, and again, I haven't read it. I've just I'm just just linking to linking to the the abstract here and for show notes, but. Um, Let's see. Um, it's crazy. Yeah, the p-value is zero point zero two three. Um, yeah, the odds ratio is six point three three. Uh, so the odds ratio doesn't span zero. So so there is that does look like there's a, yeah um, consumption of pork pie and consumption of uh, ham and sausage uh, from a major UK supermarket chain, not named. Um, were associated with indigenous infection. Uh, consumption of sausages and ham purchased from the supermarket were highly correlated. However, separate models showed that each variable was significantly associated with infection. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, it's uh, there's there's some more the more work to be done. But boy, you know what? Here's here's an example of the kind of thing we talk about. If if I was a U.S. pork producer, I would be asking lots of questions now about. What's, HEV yeah. in our in in the pork supply. Um, what data do we have? How can we get some data? Boy, you know, because why why is it a problem in the UK and not here? You know, um, what makes it different? Yeah. What makes it different? Because because it could because if it could happen there, it could happen here. Yeah, and I, I just pulled. So going back to temperatures, right? Mm-hmm. So this this whole idea of. Um, where was it? 71 degrees for 20 minutes or 70 for 20 minutes? Yeah, there it is. Sausages cooked for 20 minutes and 70 kill the viruses. This is coming from um, uh, health health authorities, I guess, in England and Wales. Um, the Food Safety Authority of Ireland um, says uh, on this that um, 
I like the way that these things are written. The Food Safety Authority of Ireland is of the opinion that its current recommendation to cook pork and products containing pork to a minimum temperature of 75 Celsius at the center of the thickest part is sufficient to protect consumers from pathogenic microorganisms, including hepatitis C virus. Normal grilling or frying of sausages until they are well-browned and firm inside with no traces of pink meat usually results in center temperatures in excess of 85 degrees Celsius. However, it's not recommended to rely on visual cues alone for determining thorough cooking. It's better to use a meat thermometer. So here we have a whole other temperature, right? Um, Right. Well, and also recommendation to use a thermometer. And I have to say, um, you know, shout out to the Food Safety Authority of Ireland, in particular to Wayne Anderson. I I don't know if Wayne is a is a friend of the podcast, but uh, but Wayne is somebody I know in real life, and he's he's a scientist and a smart guy, and and high up in the Food Safety Authority of Ireland. So doesn't surprise me that uh, they have good information because Wayne's a good guy. Cool. I like I like those uh, those Food Safety Authority of Ireland folks. They're good. Um, so weird. I mean, this is a weird one. I I, I like to. I say I say we uh, we note this. We so we put, this, <laughs> put a pin in it. Put a pin in this one. Uh, put it in the in the parking lot for later, <laughs> and we'll come back to uh, hepatitis C at, at some other time. Um, and uh, and yeah, and, and and let's see let's see what's going on with it. It's in it's it's a you know totally totally interesting one to me. Yep. And if you're if you're a uh, U.S pork producer or someone associated with the pork industry and you're listening to the podcast, you've been warned. And also please give us feedback about, uh, you know, why we're, why we're right or why we're wrong and why it could never happen here. Please, please do, please do, (laughs) please do email Ben. But yeah. And as, um, uh, and as Stephen Colbert would say, you're, we've put you on notice. Yeah. You're on notice. You're on notice. You're on notice. notice, Uh, us pork industry. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, so um, what, what do you want to talk about? Well, how about some rice to go with that? Pork, oh yeah, ben? rice, rice to go with our sausages. Yes, sounds like we're we're making a nice meal. We have uh, eggnog, margaritas, <laughs> uh, sausages, and rice, and coffee, and coffee. It sounds like it sounds like a lovely day. Um, so uh, don't leave cooked rice out overnight, Ben. Do you know why? Um, because the quality is not very good. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Don, can you be serious for a minute? No. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so there's a recent Barf blog post uh, from about seven days ago um, where Doug writes, I never order rice when I'm out. When I make rice, it's in the refrigerator reasonably fast, but a lot of people leave it out overnight, and that's the problem. Um, and I, I do like rice. I, I eat rice at home. I eat rice when I'm out. Um, it's one of my favorite foods. It's always been one of my favorite foods. But we know, uh, or at least um, one, one would hope we would, we would know, Food safety experts should know that the risk with rice is Bacillus cereus. And Bacillus cereus is a spore-forming organism. Um, it will grow. Uh, so the, the cooking of rice germinates the spores of Bacillus, and then the cooked rice uh, granules, grains, are susceptible to growth by the organism. And so if you cook it and you leave it out, um, don't cool it properly, then Bacillus cereus, if it's present, the spores are stimulated to germinate by the heating process, and then they begin to grow in the um, the rice grains, which are you know, um, rendered uh, susceptible to growth by the addition of moisture and by the cooking process. And um, the uh, there is uh, there have been outbreaks in the United States linked to Chinese restaurants that specifically have a practice of cooking white rice um, and then leaving it out at room temperature to uh, make into fried rice during the day. 
and the problem is that the um, uh, the the so when Bacillus cereus grows in cooked rice, it makes uh, it cause it actually has two modes of action. One is to make a heat stable toxin. One is to me- make a heat labile toxin. But the heat stable toxin obviously would survive the process of making that uh, cooked rice into fried rice, where it's where it's cooked again. So um, and there have been outbreaks linked to Chinese restaurants who have poor cooked rice refrigeration practices. So, um, so that's the, that's the, the issue. And, uh, again, this is an organism, Bacillus cereus is an organism that certainly we study about in, uh, when we study food safety or, or food science. Um, it tends to not be highly reported in the United States. Um, it tends to be more often reported in Europe and I'm not, I'm not sure why that is. I think that it may just be underreporting or missing missing the problem um, in the United States, but but again, certainly we have had outbreaks linked to uh, to Chinese restaurants. So the moral of the story is uh, leave your cooked rice out overnight. Um, but before we leave this topic completely, I want to ask if you have anything to say, and then I have an actual real life rice example where I was asked for advice, and I want to share it with you and see what advice you would give. Um. The only thing I wanted to add to this is, um, I've, you know, I, I've, I've shared that I um, spend time uh, sitting on our statewide variance committee uh, for the food code. And <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> let me tell you that um, a, a, a big portion of the variances we get are for the acidification of sushi rice. Mm-hmm. For this, you know, exact reason, it, it's a it's a quality thing, um, as well as a. Um, work, you know, working with the product um, uh, situation where when people are rolling sushi, they want to make the rice. Um, they don't want to be using hot rice to do it. Um, so they, it's best done at room temperature. So um, the food code doesn't allow for it, but, but people can uh, get a variance by um, acidifying the rice, bringing it down um, but really below, for the most part, 4.2, um, 4.1. Uh, pH and then uh, they hold that rice out um, and it's not a potentially hazardous food anymore. But it's, I mean, it's to control for Bacillus cereus. Yep. So I just, I just, you know, um, spent last week um, training uh, local environmental health specialists uh, on, on the science behind that. Well, very good. We're going to put that. Uh, we're going to put that to the test, Ben. So okay. I was I was emailed by a local public health colleague, uh, and again, I don't want to give too many. I don't know the specifics of the name of the operation, but I want to also further obfuscate um, in my in my uh, relaying this to you. Um, but again, basically, this is a uh, a uh, wholesale Asian organic vegan food processing establishment. If that's not too many qualifiers, um, <laughs> they, is that on their business card? <laughs> yeah, yes, they have really big business cards. Um, uh, they cook brown rice in six uh, large cookers. They manually scoop the rice um, and uh, put it onto trays no more than an inch deep. They roll the uh, trays into a uh, cooler. Uh, the, the ambient temperature of the cooler is 37 degrees Fahrenheit, and they cool it for four hours. They don't record temperature. After they cool the rice, they take it into the processing room. That room is at 55 degrees ambient. Um, and they make sushi out of it. They um, um, take the sushi, they put it into boxes, and then they move the boxes into a finished product cooler, 37 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. Again, no product temperatures taken. Uh, 
Um, they don't acidify the rice. They they may get some acid migration because you know they're they're you know, there's contact with pickled vegetables, etc. Um, so the question is, um, oh, and then the the management claims that they have attended a HACCP course, although they didn't have any certificates, but they do not operate under a HACCP plan. So, um, of course, the as you know, uh, food code mandates that rice uh, for sushi be acidified. Um, and so the question is, what advice do you have for this facility? Um, or do you, do you have any, need any additional information? Well, I, you know, I, I think, yeah, I do need a, a, additional information. I'd want to know the, the product temperature. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think the advice would be find out what your product temperature is and, and how, and the time. This- oh, oh, also one more thing. Um, the company has never had any complaints since oh, they've course. begun operating. <laughs> yeah, no, right, right, right. Yeah. We've been, and we've been doing it for, um, thousands of years. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh I mean time and temperature, yeah. right? Yeah. Um how long how long and and how quick and um and what I do know from my uh, uh rice acidification um uh crash course is that brown rice specifically um has trouble with the acidification because <laughs> there's still um I don't know, a seed coat I guess on it, right? Like rice is a seed, so there's um it, it, the it, there's not quite the same penetration uh, as you see in a in a clean white rice grain, right? Um, but but yeah, I mean it's hard to hard to say. And then of course they want to know if if what they're doing is is quote safe, right? Right. Um, yeah, hard hard to say without time time and temperature. Yeah, and the, the the person that emailed me said that in his opinion he thought that they probably have control, and yeah. and my opinion is yeah, based on the the ambient room temperatures and the times, I think that they probably have control too. But I would suggest exactly the same thing that they need to do some monitoring. Uh, my advice was to use a data logger so they would have yep. continuous temperatures. But if they but if they can't, then they really need time time at the start. You know, like time uh, basically. Um, uh, uh, as they begin to, as they roll it into the walk-in cooler time, when it comes out of the walk-in cooler time, uh, after the making of the sushi, right? So we need like specific time and temperatures at certain points, but ideally, uh, uh, uh some sort of a data logger. And again, um, you, you could take that and then go to a, a modeling program like the pathogen modeling program, uh, figure out, rice, uh, cooked rice pH and water activity and plug all that in. And again, you probably show minimal growth of uh, bacillus during that time. Um, and then again, if they have good control, then maybe they can, they can ease up on the record keeping, but they, they've got to start with some data, right? So yeah, so you, you and I are, are all, all on the, and, and my colleague are all on the same page with that. So yeah. And I, I'd want to know just for, um, so this is a wholesale place. So I assume that this is not, it's. I don't know. Does it fall under who? Who would regulate them into what standard? I mean, is it a GMP or would it be to the food code? Yeah. It, well, it's, so it's that's a good question. Depends and on how they're selling it. I guess. Yeah, and it, well, and it's. Uh, let's see. So they. Um, this is a uh, product that is. Uh, it's a 15 day shelf life. Um, and it's sold they, packaged, and it's sold. It's and so they and they package it right. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so f- yeah, f- fifteen day shelf life based on empirical data, not not science. Um, yep. 
Um, and well, I, I suspect based on who's doing the inspection and where the operation is located, it must be being sold in restaurants in New Jersey. Um, but yeah, you're right. This is a, this is a food processing company. So I guess if an interstate shipment, so theoretically Ooh. under, under FDA jurisdiction, but, but obviously based on the person who's emailing me, it must be coming into New Jersey restaurants or, or somehow into the New Jersey system for this, um, for this particular person. Again, I don't want to reveal too much, sure. but yeah. Well, I'd say, I mean, their first temperature that they need. I agree with the data logger, but if they don't have that, they just to be in compliance with the food code, if someone is selling it, not, you know, as a, depends on how they sell it, they'd have to drop it um, down to 70 degrees Fahrenheit within the first two hours. So it's in that cooler, you said at 37 ambient for four hours, really they need to start that cooling process to get it down to 70 from to be in compliance. Yeah, yeah, and again, I you know, I just 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 spend a little bit of money and get some data and then, yeah. you know, it's again, probably safe, but probably safe doesn't cut it, right? So, you know, get some get some idea of your process, get some idea of your degree of process control and once you have some data, you can move forward, but um we've never had a problem before. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that doesn't doesn't help. Yeah. 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 And neither did PCA. <laughs> so, so now <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there's boy, there's some there's some stuff uh, on on food safety news on on PCA about the uh, the 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 least guilty person of the of the three that were found guilty and all that stuff. But yeah, so we can we could talk about we can <laughs> we can talk about PCA or we could go on a month long poop cruise. So <laughs> <laughs> that sounds sounds lovely. Um, let, let's or something else. Or something else. Let's uh, you know. Let's do uh, let's do both. Uh, let's talk about the month long poop cruise. The only reason why I wanted to put that in there was um, we, you and I, heard a really you know. I, I think we talked about this in episode three. <laughs> I'm just reading the whole the whole I, I, the, the what what was showing in my directory was month long poop cruise, um, but now I can read the the whole headline: month long poop cruise finally docks. Promptly picks up new victims. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. It's it's a great uh, great great headline. Um, but we uh, we we sat um, in Dallas a few weeks ago and, and listened to uh, um, a couple of folks talk about uh, norovirus in the cruise in, industry. And, and although I mean, um, if we look at our denominator situation, although they make up a small portion of um, total cases of norovirus, they they are definitely the loudest cases of norovirus. Um, because, um, you know, people go on cruises not to get sick. Um, and, uh, there was a princess, uh, cruise alliance long, long, you know, month long cruise had made the, uh, um, vessel sanitation program list who our uh, our good friend, Charles Otto is uh, a prime, um, player in that, uh, in that process. Um, uh, they had, uh, over the 3000 of the, um, uh, passengers, 170 people got sick from Noro and uh, 14 crew members. Um, and, and this is, uh, you know, it just highlights the, the issue. You've got people that get sick. Someone shows up on, on the boat with an illness or picks it up uh, at, as they have docked somewhere or um, food that comes in that, that comes, con, you know, contaminated. And once a case is there, 
it's really hard to get it out of the system because you you've got the same cleaning crew there's a sh- uh, that that are going through restrooms um, that uh, maybe people are using um, the the right compounds maybe they're not um, but uh, it's uh, it, 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 it's it's a problem. <laughs> this is a very it's I, well done. Yeah, I, and Gawker is so it's just such an annoying website, and all of the the, the other links to other stories in the in the margins are highly annoying. But um, the uh, the Crown Princess. I'm reading from the article now. The Crown Princess boat, according to the cruise line, has space for more than three thousand deathly ill passengers, with nine hundred balconies to vomit from, and dozens of restaurants from which to eat contaminated food. Um, um, yeah, it's again norovirus. They're probably not deathly ill, but um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, it, uh, but interesting situation, and we see this with the with the hotels. Mm. The, the you know the next line is the Crown Princess has been the site of a norovirus outbreak twice this year already, and it's the fourth outbreak on this exact um, this exact ship, ship since 2012. Um, are you know if we look in the temporal issue, are these two? Um, outbreak or the um, yeah the outbreak that happened earlier this year uh, or the outbreaks that happened earlier this year are they linked are they right. not linked I mean what do we we don't know a whole lot maybe we know the virus persists for a long time um, it's uh, who, who knows exactly um, where where it comes from um, but I mean the the stigma and you know getting back to to some of Peter Sandman's uh, sort of outrage um, stuff. I don't. People get really upset when they go on a cruise and get sick, or or their cruise they, their cruise experience is limited because they're ill, um, or and and this was the I, I think the most you know telling challenge that 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 industry has is I've booked this cruise, I've got time off of work, um, I'm, you know I'm on vacation. Uh, it's it's not a it's not a cheap. Um, it's a good value vacation, but it's not a cheap vacation to walk away from. And now when I step on that boat, I'm asked to tell people whether I'm ill or not, knowing that if I say that I'm ill, they may not let me on. Now, they may rebook me or or they may not. I mean, it depends on the policy of the, uh, of the ship. But, but, but it, the, it, all indications point to I'm probably going to lie um, that, I'm, that I'm ill or that I'm not ill, <laughs> even if I was. Yeah, and I guess if I was uh, if I was the uh, Princess Cruise person in charge of this, I would want to know. And again, you know, there's a reason why I don't have that job. <laughs> I have the job that I have, but I would want to know: uh, is it the same strain, right? Right. Because if it's the same strain, then it must be harborage on the boat. Um, if it's a different strain, then it's that's brought in by a passenger. And yeah, and I, you know, that's a good question about the 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 policies. I I would say if I was a cruise line, I would want to have a very lenient policy towards letting people rebook. Right. I would Absolutely. want to not charge them a lot of money to rebook. In fact, to make it, to, I want to incite people. I want to give people the incentive to not come on my boat while they're sick. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, having a, clearly, I don't know the economics of it, mm-hmm. but, but having no charge for rebooking might be a, a, a good way for me to, to keep, you know, outbreaks like this happening. And it's not that there are a lot of outbreaks, but when they do happen, they're extremely notable. I mean, it's, it's known, um, affectionately by the media. Norovirus is known as the cruise ship virus. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it, it's an interesting, 
um, situation that the cruise lines find themselves in. Um, and, and, you know, I think the statistic that was cited in the meeting that we're at is that um, of the, you know, estimated around 20 million cases of um, norovirus that happen um, annually in the U.S., the cruise industry makes up somewhere in between 1% and 2% of those illnesses. Now, there's a denominator yep. issue right there. Um, that I've, you know, I've never been on a cruise, but I do eat a lot of food, right? Like I'm exposed to norovirus through food quite a bit, but I, I've not been exposed through a cruise ship. And, and so I can't remember what the exact stats that we pulled out on this was when we were sitting there, but it's, it, you know, it, it, it seems like maybe you're, um, you know, there, there are a few million people that take cruises every year. Um, you know, maybe it's a little more than, uh, I think it was like three percent of the North American population will take a cruise, um, and, and and that population gives you one percent of the um, the norovirus illnesses annually. Right. So, so yeah, it's uh, interesting time. I, there's a, they continue to have a challenge, and and actually, I mean, the one of the cool things that that came up in that discussion uh, at the Noracor uh, meeting was um, that people who go on cruises, you know, we, we the, the the compound that's the, that's the best for, or at least that CDC recommends as as being the best for um, cleaning up a norovirus um, incident is is chlorine at you know in between one thousand and five thousand ppm, which is a weird um, ratio or weird thing to you know weird parameters. But say it's five thousand ppm, um, that put against chrome or brass uh, is is going to uh, dull that. Uh, you know, make it make it look not not so great. You got all this sort of chlorine, and you you got a big issue when it's when it comes to if someone vomits on carpet. So, so the industry is is I think looking for what are you know give us some better compounds that um, that that will be effective against norovirus, but won't do things physically to our to our ship because people are coming here to to you know have a opulent holiday <laughs> or vacation. Yes. So hey, we're uh, we're like an hour and a half into this thing. What do you got? What else? What else you got for me? Well, um, do, do you do you want to talk about uh, Peanut Corporation of America? Yeah, let's talk about that that story. Yeah. Uh, so so we go. yeah. So this is an article that uh, appeared in in Food Safety News recently, and we'll uh, we'll link to the article. Um, but what 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 struck me to begin with, what, so this is an article uh, that the headline of which is uh, government colon plenty of evidence backs up Wilkerson's guilty verdict, and so there were three people found guilty in the FDA's uh, case against Peanut Corporation of America. Uh, Stewart and William Parnell, the two brothers who basically owned the business, and and Wilkerson, who was an employee, um, and you know, I, I, so what hooked me in was the first line of the story, and that is that Mary Wilkerson was first hired in 2002 to answer phones at PCA. And then she worked her way up in March of 2008 to being manager of quality assurance. Um, on the one hand, that's the American dream. <laughs> on the other hand, I'm sure there's a major university located in Georgia that probably graduates people capable 
of of serving, you know, getting a, a having a bachelor's degree in food science that could have worked in quality assurance at that plant. So, I mean, again, nothing against people working their way up, but I have the so the so I'm I'm conflicted, Ben. On the one hand, it's great that Mary worked her way up. On the other hand, I'm not sure that she was qualified if she was originally and you know hired to answer phones. So, yeah, and and there's I mean. There, there's kind of a, a situation that that we face in in the food industry is, um, and and we'll see this with with the FISMA uh, preventive control rule. We'll see this with the with the produce rules. It gets rolled out. Is we're we're requiring, or not we are, but um, regulators and, and and the laws are the law is going to require that there are qualified individuals to work. As you know, in in these plants, uh, as a um, director of quality insurance, or, uh, quality assurance, and um, not quality insurance. That's uh, that's what I get from State Farm. Um, but um, so, uh, but but do we do we even have the capacity right now to to put um, uh, someone who has a, a food science, food safety? background at, at at every plant and and what are we doing um, from a training standpoint not just putting someone through a, a three or four day workshop but really building those skills and creating um, communities a, a really of support around um, uh, around these these individuals um, that they're going to be required to uh, to implement a, a food safety plan to, to really really look at at hazards. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I, I, I look back at a situation that, that we had in North Carolina a few years ago when, um, a, a company had a, had a recall. And, uh, as a result of that recall, they wanted to hire a, um, a food safety, um, coordinator or a food safety manager for their business, um, about an hour south of, south of Raleigh. And, um, so, so we had a conversation about, um, you know, graduates from the food science department, um, and you know, do, would they have a, with an undergraduate degree? Would they would they have enough uh, background? As, you know, my, my comment was well, that, that's a good place to start, um, but those individuals can go into um, a, a beef or pork processing um, career. Um, you know, similar to, to what our um, uh, you know, as, even as an undergrad and start. Um, in in or at, like graduated with an undergraduate degree, um, and, and start off with with a pretty good wage and, and salary. Um, you know, our our friend um, Three Dub, um, Wendy Wade White, um, is, is always looking for um, individuals that are that that have a, a little bit of a background to work with with their company, and, and it's you know doing quality assurance on a third shift and or or whatever maybe not the most glamorous type job but but they're making good money and this this individual company that, that we dealt with wanted to hire someone with a starting salary of twenty eight thousand dollars and and so I think when you want to hire someone to run food safety for your company that that your um, your sales are in the millions every year for twenty eight thousand dollars then that's how you get someone who used to answer phones mm-hmm. yeah. to be the quality assurance I mean I, th- I think we probably have we probably don't have enough graduates but we also don't have a 
um, especially a, a small and medium-sized business area of the food industry that that may have the money or the want to, to pay somebody um, who has that um, that experience and, and, and that background. And that's you know that's a, a that's a challenge. That's going to be a problem. Yeah, continues to be a problem. Yeah, and then you know the other thing that that, that got me in this story was uh, that, uh, that again the, the the writer goes on to write that a team of some of the South's best federal defense attorneys represented each Parnell brother. Only a single court court appointed local defense attorney from Albany, Georgia, represents Wilkerson. So again, um, this this woman, I'm really starting to feel for this woman now, right? Like she clearly maybe she was in the wrong, um, but uh, but boy, she really got caught up in this. And then again. The, the story goes on to say she emerged from the nearly eight-week jury trial better off than the Parnells, a guilty verdict for a single count of felony, federal felony obstruction of justice, which could lead to five years in prison. So, yeah, she got off easy, only five years in prison. That's that's still wow. that's horrible, right? Yeah. So I don't know. Um, it just it just kind of it just sort of tugged on my heartstrings a little bit. I felt I felt bad for. Her. I guess I kind of wish maybe she had just sort of flipped early and and gone you know gone on the the fed side to put these two sons of bitches in jail you know but yeah. she didn't so it's yeah exactly it's uh who, who knows the the backstory but it was it was interesting thanks for sharing that because i hadn't i hadn't seen this until you you uh, had put it in the um in our file and it's uh yeah it was it's a uh it's a think piece yeah. So, and I know you and I both have a hard out. We have the same conference call coming up we uh, do. at the top of the hour, but do we have, I just want to talk maybe a little bit about, um, Aramark and the Kansas city Royals. Do we have time? Oh yeah, we got, we have so, time. so this is another, this is another thing from food safety news and it's, it's a letter from the editor, uh, entitled, uh, Casey's food safety mess in pro sports. And so this is, um, and this is, I think we talked about this on the podcast. Uh, Doug was emailed a video slide set uh, from a disgruntled uh, food safety manager. Um, uh, the guy's name uh, is now revealed in this food safety news article. His name is John Costa. No, no relation to Ray Costa, I think, right? I, as far as we know. <laughs> um, uh, and it says, um, uh, let's see, where's the, uh, the punchline here? So, um, uh, so, so again, this guy released a, a video which which made it into the news eventually. Although he didn't get any traction with Doug and, and Barfblog, um, but uh, Aramark, the the company, uh, called Costa, who they had hired away from the city health department two and a half years ago, a quote disgruntled employee. Um, and, uh, and and again, you know, it sort of turned into a, a shouting contest or a, a, a pissing contest between Costa and Aramark, where Aramark is saying everything's fine, all the issues have been resolved. And, you know, a, a lot of uh, what Costa raised really looked at, again, maybe some food safety issues. I'm not sure that hot dog, uh, ballpark hot dogs are really at high risk, but certainly the yuck factor on a lot of the things that he revealed is pretty is pretty high. Um, uh, again, just quoting from the article here, uh, for its part, Aramark appears to be as tone deaf about food safety as, as are the KC sports teams, um, uh, putting the problems back on Costa, saying he was, quote, personally responsible. 
responsible and entrusted with managing food safety at the locations in question. Well, here's the thing. Costa tried to get things fixed and, uh, you know, he, he got a lack of response. So, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting story. I'm glad that he got some traction. I mean, obviously that's a pretty brave thing to do to put all this stuff out there, knowing essentially, uh, like it says in the story, expecting that he's going to be fired. But, but I, this is my sense is from looking at the video, this was a guy at the end of his rope, right? This was a guy who was charged to do stuff about food safety and didn't, couldn't accomplish it for whatever reason. And so he felt like, well, okay, I'm going out, I'm going out with a bang, you know, I'm, I'm going to post this video and I'm going to share it and do what you will fire me, Aramark, if you, if you think you need to do that. Um, what's your take on the whole thing? Well, I, I appreciate, um, people putting their, you know, necks on the line. Um, like this, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I don't think we we know enough about the backstory on the he said she said um, disgruntled employee um, uh, part of things. I I do. Um, I I don't like. Um, it's not the best communications. I think when you say things like um, they put it right back on him saying he was personally responsible and trusted with managing food Mm -hmm. safety at locations in question, because I think the part that's missing in that quote is, yeah, except you hired him, (laughs) right? Like you put him, you made him personally responsible. If you didn't feel that he was um, fit for the job, then, um, then, then, then you have to get rid of him or, or limit, right? Like that's, that, that seems like a big cop out um, to me. Um, it's uh, so. So I, I guess we just don't know the enough of the backstory on whether this is it. it it's true. It's staged. How it looks for for real. I, I think it would be. Um, it, you know, if we knew some of those those internal um, discussions and whether or not um, Mr. Costa, you know, did raise this and, and felt that he didn't get enough support, which is which is really what what started this whole thing and, and what he had shared, um, you know, directly with Doug and, and a bunch of others, um, saying I'm I'm at my wits end mm-hmm. um, here here. I, I, the only thing I know how to do to make something change is to to make this public, and I have, I you know, I have a lot of. Um, respect for that i like <laughs> i i i i some i, I sometimes in, enjoy that um not enjoy but i i, I think that that's a a, a a um an effective way uh of changing things um sometimes i mean not not to get too uh um dogmatic in the food safety world but that's kind of what the jungle was all about mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um right and so so that's so, so it's, that's a that's a good thing it's it's a shame that um that john costa didn't um didn't feel that he had enough support to do so and we don't know the full story but but here we are talking about um you know you and i are talking about it it's in food safety news it was espn um uh, picked it up, and that was really the the push, um, and and so it made national news that that he he what you know, whatever his point was, um, people are, are are taking note and and talking about it. Well, and and see, and I just thought of a link to the Wilkerson story. So you know, Wilkerson's going to go to jail for five years. Yeah. Um. Right. Unless uh, unless that gets changed, Costa is out of a job, <laughs> and yep. for for the moment, he has uh, some internet celebrity. So, uh, you know, but, but for like, for potentially doing the right, the right thing, right. Right. And, yeah. Um, and, and just, you know, making, making the company, um, not look so good. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and again, it comes back to these discussions around food safety culture and, and what does that mean to have a food safety culture and how do you create a food safety culture? And it would seem to me that clearly PCA did not have a food safety culture. It would seem to me that Aramark, uh, there's certainly some indications that Aramark does not have a food safety culture. Well, and let's, you know, looking back here, I, I was interviewed as part of the um, original ESPN outside the, the lines um, article back in 2010 that looked at food safety in, in stadiums. And, mm. and we talked a lot with the, with the producers about, um, about what, what food safety culture means and, and ways to, to measure it. And, you know, they were really interested in, in talking about, um, you know, inspection results and, and here, um, the Aramark run, um, uh, concessions in 2010, 62% of them had, um, uh, violations, um, you know, uh, critical food safety violations. So is that, you know, I, who knows whether whether Costa was there or not at the, at that time, um, but you know that's four years ago. Where was were they not able to um, to to change the culture within within those concessions? I, I well, the, the the story said he was hired two two and a half years ago, so that he oh, was okay. not there then. So maybe yeah. he was brought in to try to fix it, and he couldn't do it, right? Yeah. And, and and so maybe, yeah, so maybe it's much larger. I I feel for these concession stands. Um, I don't know what it's like elsewhere, but um, here at uh, PNC Arena, where the Carolina Hurricanes play and NC State basketball um, play uh, plays, they have um, you know regular concession stands that are run by volunteers as a fundraiser. So, so you may have a manager in there, you may have cooks, but the frontline staff are, are ultimately just, you know, and they're essentially food handlers. Um, they're, they're folks from, you know, Rollsville High School who are trying to make money for their band. Um, that's a challenge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't know if that's the same kind of situation, but, um, yeah, um, in, you know, interesting stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of money in professional sports. Uh, they should throw some money towards food safety, in my opinion. Yeah. There's not, a- not not being involved in professional sports in any way as a, as a viewer or a or a player. So I, you know, I, you may find that surprising. Um, <laughs> I thought you were a professional cricket player. Um, for, uh, Whack that. Whack yeah. that's my sport, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, for uh, for someone who does spend a lot of time with professional sports, I'll tell you that uh, food at concession stands not the cheapest. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> also, not um, don't have a lot of options. Can't uh, can't bring in your own uh, uh, sandwiches. Uh, so uh, mm-hmm. and I and I do like to eat a, 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 some stuff while, while I'm there. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, it's how I get my children through uh, three periods of hockey. Is usually with um, <laughs> one giant popcorn tub and two uh, one trip to the Dip and Dot station. So I've got it. I've got it all down. I know I, I can calculate what the ticket costs are plus the food costs uh, to figure out whether it's a cost effective day for me. <laughs> so. Well, let's call that a show. I think that's think? a show, Ben. Thanks. Thank you, Don. Um, as always, uh, pleasure pleasure talking to you and catching up. Um, we'll uh, we'll post these things on Food Safety Talk. Thanks for the listeners. And uh, oh, and we should say too, and we should have said at the top of the show, um, we haven't made a plea recently, but uh, please do rate the show in iTunes. It helps uh, new new folks find uh, uh, find the show. Uh, if you when we post a new episode, if you can share that on social media, that's also a great way to help people find the show. And uh, you know, we're here to answer your food safety 
50 questions. So uh, there's a contact uh, button on the website. Please do send us your questions or comments. Um, we would love to hear from you. Uh, we, we would do this even if no one listened, but uh, it's better when people listen and, and we do, uh, do want to make, well, we pretty much don't care what you think. <laughs> um, we're going to make the show we're going to make, but, but if you have comments, uh, please feel the eat. Please feel free to email us, and uh, who knows? We might uh, we might change the show to make it so you like it more, but, uh, but don't count on it. <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> we would, bottom line is we would love to hear from you. We'll read it. We will definitely read it. We'll read it. We'll definitely read it. Yep. All right. We'll talk to you later, Don. Bye, Ben. Bye-bye.